Well, good evening, everybody. It's my joy and privilege to be able to lead us through our study of the Gospel of John over the course of the next 13 weeks. Originally, I had a fun icebreaker game planned out to get us started tonight, but given the fact that there's far more people here than I was anticipating there being, we're going to go ahead and forego the icebreaker. I just want to encourage you guys, a big part of this study is going to be the discussion, the interaction, the fellowshipping with one another. So I would just encourage you guys to spend some time either before or after or both these studies so that you can be able to Uh, Join together, get to know one another. If you don't already know every person in here, I know in my case, in my wife's case, we have a lot of getting to know uh, one another uh, in our future here at FBC Inez. So uh, we really look forward to being able to do life with you all this summer. And Lord willing, hopefully we'll see a lot of good fruit over the course of our 13-week study through the Gospel of John. Um, You'll notice in this workbook that there are 12 lessons each corresponding with different sections found throughout the Gospel of John. So the plan for the course of this summer is to devote each week to covering a particular section in this workbook. So tonight, since you guys were not able to have a workbook prior to the study, we're going to cover the four-page introduction section that's found at the very beginning of the workbooks that each family should have received upon coming here tonight. My prayer is to have us out of here by 8 o'clock every single week. So Lord willing, we'll start somewhere around 6.40, 6.45, and we'll plan on wrapping up sometime around 8. For those of you guys who've heard me teach before, you know that might be a little bit of a tall order, so bear with me. I tend to be long-winded, uh, but I pray that everything that uh, I have to share and everything that we discuss will be edifying and fruitful. But before we get started with the introduction section tonight, I want to go over three objectives that I have for the course of this summer study. And I want these objectives to be at the forefront of our minds as we go through uh, the next 12 sections found in the Gospel of John. I wrote these out just so I would remember them. The first objective that I want us to think through and to really have um, at the epicenter of our focus throughout the course of this summer is that we would grow in our love for God our love for God's word and our love for one another. And that really echoes a lot of what I said just a few moments ago about the necessity of really spending time with one another in fellowship before these studies and after these studies. Um, For those of you guys who are familiar with my teaching, I I tend to uh, record each study. So if you miss any study here, you will be able to catch up on what I discussed the previous week. So um, that leads us to the second objective that I have for us this summer. It's to be committed to the curriculum that we're going to be devoting our attention to over the summer. Um, Ideally, every single one of us will be here over the next 13 weeks without any interruption, but I know that life happens sometimes in God's providence. He puts certain circumstances into our lives that are beyond our ability to control. And as such, you may find yourself missing a week or two weeks over the course of the summer. And if you do, that's okay. My prayer and my plea for all of us is that whether you're here every single week or whether you miss a few weeks, that you would take the time um, each week throughout this summer to go through the section that we would be covering Go through the text, read it, familiarize yourself with it, and go through the discussion questions that pertain to that text. That way you're not behind schedule, as it were, whenever you come a following week or a couple weeks later, whatever the case may be. um, By being committed to the curriculum, that's going to ensure that you get the most out of this study and that you get the most out of our time together here on Wednesday night. So objective number one, grow in our love for God, for his word, and for one another. 
Objective number two, be committed to the curriculum and working through the discussion questions prior to each meeting. And then objective number three, and this is the most important one that I have for all of us, have fun. Now, that might sound pretty corny, but my prayer is that my love for God's word, my love for God, my love for y'all, and that your love for God, your love for God's word, and your love for one another will be a means of motivating you to draw near to the Lord in prayer and the study of his word and going out of your way to engage in regular fellowship opportunities with God's people. I think of what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119.97 when he declared, Oh, how I love God's word. It is my meditation all the day. And that really gets to the heart of why we have these Wednesday night studies is that God's word the glory of God, the truth of God, and the people of God, that all of those factors would be front and center in your life and my life, that we would delight in these times together, that this would not be burdensome, but that it would be a joy and a great privilege. So that's my prayer, and I guess you could say that's my plea for each of you guys. Let's take this study seriously this summer. Let's take our times together seriously this summer, and I trust that in doing so, God will work in profound ways um, as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So with that being said, just by way of introduction, I invite you to open up your workbooks to page one, page one, and you'll note that as we go through the workbook, both tonight and in the weeks to come, that we're going to be engaging with a lot of, I've mentioned already, discussion questions. We're also going to be engaging with some commentary that's provided by the author of this workbook, who's John MacArthur. Many of you may be familiar with him. He's a pretty famous Bible teacher. Uh, been at Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California for the past 53 years. Uh, he's got great insights to share about God's Word. And over the next four pages, what we're going to find is an overview or an introduction from Dr. MacArthur's commentary on the Gospel of John to prepare us to study the rest of the book, the rest of this workbook, and of course the Gospel of John over the next 12 to 13 weeks. Um, As important as it is to study the content found in this workbook as it pertains to discussion questions and as it pertains to John MacArthur's commentary, there's nothing more important than we can devote ourselves to than that of God's Word. So though we're going to be reading a lot of what John MacArthur has to say tonight, We're going to be looking even more in depth into what Scripture has to say. We're going to be going to a lot of Bible verses tonight to help us get a 30,000-foot flyover of what the Gospel of John entails. So I pray that you guys came ready to flip through the pages of Scripture, or if you use a mobile device like I do, I hope your thumbs are ready to get a workout in, because we're going to be looking at a lot of Scripture as well as a lot of what MacArthur has to say here in the introduction. So the way that this is going to work is... I'm going to, uh, I'll read some of these portions of this introduction. I'm also going to ask for volunteers to read portions of this introduction section. I'm also going to ask for several volunteers to read scripture. Another key aspect of this summer study is that I don't want to talk a lot. I hope that tonight I wind up talking more than I'll talk in the uh, weeks to come because what I would pray is that this is not so much a lecture as it is a group discussion, a time of group interaction. Uh, which is why it's so important to take the time to read the passage and do the discussion questions each week. So before we kick off page one, I just want to ask an introduction question to kind of kick us off with some of that group interaction, some of that group discussion. And my question is this. 
why should we devote time studying the background information of a book in the Bible? What's the point of devoting time to learning about the identity of the author of a book of the Bible, the date that that book was written, the key themes of that book of the Bible, and any key interpretive issues that might arise in a book? Let's just start there, because that's really what we're doing tonight. We're looking at who was John, why did he write the Gospel of John, what was the context, the historical background undergirding that, that book of the Bible, and what are the central issues in that book? What are the key themes that John wants his readers to understand in his Gospel? Why would we look into studying those particular details? So at this point, this is when we would have group discussion. So the floor, the floor is yours at this time. really good. Um, so yeah, you, you want to know who wrote a book of the Bible so that you recognize they were a real person in real history. They had a real upbringing. They had, they had a unique background that directly influenced their personality, their worldview, um, their perspective on cultural issues of that day, so on and so forth. Those are all integrally related to studying those background details. What are some other reasons that you would say? Other reasons for learning who the author was of a book of Scripture. What was the historical context of the book that was written? I like the, uh, looking at the historical context because uh, there's nothing under the sun. And as we look at our world and everything going on, man has always been what man is. That's right. And yet God was still doing what he has always done and always will do. That's right. So, Right. As a you know, as a big picture when in comparison to what the Lord was doing in as he was fulfilling it. That's absolutely right. And never shut the door. Now, those are some good insights and, and good thoughts for us to have as we look to get our discussion going um, tonight. How many of you guys have heard of somebody, maybe you've experienced this for some of you youth, where there, there's a, either an article online or maybe a text message that a friend sent to somebody and they just went in there and they plucked something right out of the middle of its context and it completely changed the intended meaning of what that person was wanting to write. Have you ever seen that happen before? What tends to happen when certain details are cherry-picked out of their context or if you, if you just see a couple lines of an article or a text message or um, a book that somebody's written, but you really don't know anything about the person who wrote it. What tends to happen? It really changes things. Changes things. It can create confusion, right? You may not fully understand the purpose behind why the individual wrote what they wrote, or it could potentially change the whole meaning of what they had written. Um, my prayer is that by, by going through these details tonight of 
the, the identity of the author of the Gospel of John, the historical background, the key themes, and so on. My prayer is that this will cause you and me to think more deeply and comprehensively about the so what behind a book of the Bible. We heard it said, this was a real man who lived some 2,000 years ago. Okay? He lived in a real historical context. There, you know, today, you have all the social justice issues. You have the LGBTQ issues, right? Those are cultural, historical issues that are part of our context. John had historical and cultural issues that were part of his context that he's trying to um, directly engage with from a Christian perspective. So that's why it's important to ensure that we're aware of who's writing a book of the Bible. Where was he at in redemptive history? What was his perspective that he was trying to instill in the minds of his readers? So I hope that gives us a little bit of structure, if you will, as we prepare now to read through this introduction section. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the, um, it's literally like a line and a half underneath the heading, Introduction to John on page one, and then under the subheading titled Author and Date, I'm going to read that top paragraph. And then I would like a volunteer to read that second paragraph right underneath, somebody with a book, page one. It's a pretty significant chunk of text, but so somebody who's a good reader would like to volunteer to read that paragraph. Show of hands. Okay, so we've got a volunteer there. And then in that paragraph, there are, there are seven scripture references. So again, this is all John MacArthur's commentary, right? So on top of MacArthur's commentary, we're going to read the scripture references that he uses to give him the to, to give him the data or to give him the argument that he's trying to make here. How many of you guys are familiar with the Bereans in the book of Acts? Acts 17. You ever heard of being a Berean? That's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to take what MacArthur writes, and then we're going to go to scripture to see if what MacArthur is writing is accurate, if it's an accurate representation of what is being conveyed in John's gospel. So um, this is when the popcorn uh, effect starts happening. I need a volunteer to read John 13, 23 when we get to it. Luke's going to take that. John 19, 26 when we get to it. All right. Remind me of your name again, ma'am. Debbie. Sorry. I will not. I'll try not to forget. John 20, verse 2. John 20, verse 2, cash. John 21, verse 7. If you guys don't want to raise your hand, thank you. I was just going to say, if you don't want to raise your hand, then I hate to break it to you, but there's literally probably 100 scriptures in this section alone. So we're going to need your help at some point. So hope we get a little bit more interaction here. John 21, verse 20. I'll do that. Perfect. I'll take John 21, verse 2. And who wants to take John 21, verse 24? All right, perfect. Nancy, take that. So guys, the way to work. So this is why it's important to have your workbooks too when you come each week. You'll notice in this paragraph um, that has all the scripture references, we're going to read those scriptures immediately after the sentence that goes before it. That way it flows together. That way you can see the biblical passages that are in direct reference to what MacArthur's saying. Does that make sense? All right, let me read my section, and then we'll get into the, the second section that has the um, Scripture references. Introduction to John, top of page one. The title of the fourth gospel was identified originally as, according to John, 
Like the others, the gospel was added later. Author and date. Although the author's name does not appear in the gospel, early church tradition strongly and consistently identified him as the Apostle John. The early church father Irenaeus, who lived between the years A.D. 130 to 200, was a disciple of Polycarp, who lived between the years A.D. 70 to 160, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, and he testified on Polycarp's authority that John had written the gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia Minor when he was advanced in age. Subsequent to Irenaeus, all the church fathers assumed John to be the gospel's author. Clement of Alexandria, who lived between the years A.D. 150 to 215, wrote that John, aware of the facts set forth in the other gospels and being moved by the Holy Spirit, composed a spiritual gospel. And then take the next paragraph. Who's going to read that next paragraph? Very good. So, um, did you did you follow what MacArthur's saying there? That um, John is referring to himself time after time throughout the course of the gospel as himself being the one whom Jesus loved. So, let's look at some scripture references that really draw that out. You'll see it explicitly in the text. Um, who had the John thirteen twenty three text? Very good. 1926. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. Very good. 20 and verse 2. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have Very good. 21 verse 7. Good. And then verse 20 of John 21. Uh, yeah, verse 20 of chapter 21. Peter turned around and saw behind him the disciple 
Very good. And then I'll take 21, verse 2. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. And then 21, verse 24. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Very good. So did, did you see the recurring theme there that MacArthur's pointing to throughout the Gospel of John? John is, is, is using um, that phrase as a way of showing humility. And what he says right there at the end of this paragraph, that it's obvious that the Apostle John is the one that's being referred to because he explicitly mentions the names of the other disciples. Do you you follow that? Like if, if this wasn't the Apostle John, if he wasn't using this as an intentional way of being humble, he would not have omitted his own name from the mentioning of the other disciples throughout the rest of the gospel. It's a very remarkable uh, literary technique that, James, or that John is using here, and it goes to speak volumes about the kind of person that he was. This was a man who was deeply humble. I'm going to take the next paragraph here and then open us up for some discussion. The gospel's anonymity strongly reinforces the arguments favoring John's authorship For only someone of his well-known and preeminent authority as an apostle would have been able to write a gospel that differed so markedly in form and substance from the other gospels and have it receive unanimous acceptance in the early church. In contrast, apocryphal gospels produced from the mid-2nd century onward and falsely ascribed to apostles or other famous persons closely associated with Jesus were universally rejected by the church. So one more paragraph, and then we'll do a time of group discussion. Um, got just a tad bit ahead of myself here. We've got this. It's, it's really two paragraphs, but one final section before the next subheading. So who would like to read that chunk of text from the word John and James down to the very end of this section? Right before background and setting, if you have a workbook. You'll take that. Okay. And guys, so here's what we're going to do. If you've got a workbook, you've probably noticed this by now. Lots of scripture references in this text. So what we're going to do um, as we read this. So as, as you go through this paragraph, anytime you come to a scripture reference, I want you to pause. And then whoever has that assigned scripture reference needs to read that scripture. Okay. It's going to allow, again, we're trying to make this as seamless as possible. We're trying to take what MacArthur says and verify it with the Word of God. So let's assign, these, let's assign these Scripture references, and then we will work through it as, or we will work through each of those Scripture references as we make our way through this chunk of commentary from MacArthur. So first Scripture reference. I'll take the first one just to kick us off, Acts 12.2. Uh, I need somebody to take Matthew 10, verses 2 through 4. Matthew 10, verses 2 through 4, great. Um, Mark 3.17. Perfect. Luke 6, 12 to 16. All right. I'm going to read the chunk of text and scripture. I love it. Matthew 17, 1. Cash. Matthew 26, 37. Perfect. Uh, 1 John 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke. Uh, Galatians 2, 9. Thank you, Falcon. Uh, Acts 3, 1. Take that. Perfect. Acts 4, 13. Perfect. Acts 
8.14, good. Uh, Revelation 1.9. All right, I'll take the last one, Revelation 1.1. Again, guys, so as, as, we read the, as you read that paragraph, make sure you have a workbook in front of you and you're paying attention. And as soon as she gets to a scripture reference, she's going to pause. You're going to read your passage, okay? It's going to allow us to really work well with what MacArthur's developing here. And most importantly, it's going to allow us to see what God's Word says on these topics. So, go ahead and kick us off. Very good. I'll read that. I'll start in verse 1 for context. Now, about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And Herod had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. Okay, continue. Who has Matthew 10, 2 through 4? Thank you, buddy.
Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. All right, and then there's that last paragraph right there before concluding the um, section, please. Very good. So just to recap, here's what we've just learned about John. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. His older brother was James, the son of Zebedee, and him and his brother James were likened as the sons of thunder. Um, He was in the inner three. Peter, James, and John were were Christ's inner three disciples. They were there for the transfiguration, uh, as we read about in Matthew 17, or at least we had it alluded to at that point. Um, He was also a leader in the early church. He wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. So you've got five of the 27 New Testament books written by this guy. And we found that John likely wrote this Gospel account sometime between 80 and 90 A.D. So that's just a little bit about the man who wrote this Gospel record under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We saw much of that echoed in the biblical passages that we just read together. Group discussion time. We've just spent some time looking into what Scripture and church history has to say about John. Why do you think it's important to use both witnesses in finding out information about a biblical author or character? So why is it important to look to the testimony of history? And why is it important to look to the testimony of Scripture? That's the first part of the question. Why look at history? Why look at Scripture to learn more about John? 
Second part of the question is this. Between the testimony of history and the testimony of Scripture, which witness is our ultimate authority and why? So let's start with the first part of that question. Why should we look outside of the Bible to find information out about a biblical author or character? And if I could just say this, just maybe by way of parenthesis here, MacArthur has the highest view of Scripture that you could have. Highest view of Scripture that you could have. And yet MacArthur, he's quoting Irenaeus. He's quoting Clement of Alexandria. He's referencing Polycarp of Smyrna. He's referencing historical attesting witnesses outside of Scripture to help them frame a more robust understanding or a more um, thorough portrait of who John is. So why, why would we do that? Why, why would we go beyond Scripture in some cases to give us a more um, detailed overview of a biblical author or character? What do you think? Did you guys hear that? Verifies what we believe is true from Scripture. Absolutely true. Why else would we look outside of Scripture? Yeah, different perspective or more full-orbed perspective. Let me ask you this question. Does Scripture say everything there is to know about John or about anything for that matter? No, right? Scripture is absolutely sufficient for all matters pertaining to salvation and how we should live our lives to the glory of God. And, and it says everything that we need to know in terms of what God wants us to know that he hasn't kept secret, as we find in Deuteronomy 29, 29. Many of you guys have had that passage etched in your memory. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but that of which he has revealed belongs to us and to our children forever. So Scripture doesn't say everything there is to know about archaeology, about a biblical author, about a biblical character. It doesn't even say everything there is to know about Jesus. John's going to make that statement abundantly clear at the end of his gospel, and we're going to read that text together in just a few moments. So we look outside of Scripture sometimes because insofar that it's accurate helps us better understand what God's Word is saying about a biblical author or a biblical character. So history can be a valuable resource for confirming what God's Word says and for just providing us with a more, a more full-orb flavor of who a person was or what a person did or um, any number of details that we might be interested in finding out through a study of God's Word. Now that sets the table now for the second part of that discussion question. Out of the testimony of history and the testimony of Scripture, which of those two witnesses, which of those two revelations are our ultimate authority? Is it history or is it Scripture? Scripture, right? Why is Scripture the ultimate authority? Why? So many of you kids are in school right now. Uh, some of y'all are homeschooled, but um, I, I take it that you interact with other people outside of your immediate family, whether it be in extracurriculars or um, at camp or uh, whatever activities you find yourself doing on a regular basis. Somebody came up to you and asked, why is the Bible your ultimate authority? Why isn't um, science your ultimate authority? Why isn't history your ultimate authority? Why isn't such and such your ultimate authority? Why Scripture? Why is that the ultimate authority? What do you tell them? I know parents, y'all know this answer, but I want to hear some youth on this one. Why is Scripture the ultimate authority? Because 
What's that? The Bible, hasn't been Bible hasn't been proven wrong. It's exactly right. There's a technical term for that. You've heard Nick say it, I'm sure. You may have even heard your parents say it. Biblical inerrancy. Biblical inerrancy. The Bible is without error. And why is it without error? The Bible is without error because the Bible is God's self-revelation. It's His special revelation. It, it, because God is perfect, His own revelation about Himself cannot err and it will not err. As the, uh, I think it's in Romans 3, citing from the Old Testament, uh, states, Let God be found true and every man a liar. God will never be found to err. If there's a discrepancy in Scripture, the discrepancy is not in Scripture. The discrepancy is we aren't interpreting it correctly. We don't have the full picture. We don't have the full orb understanding that we need to understand that passage. So, though we recognize history and we recognize extra biblical sources as being very helpful and helping us gain a better understanding of a biblical character or author or event or so on, we recognize that Scripture is our ultimate authority. And that if we had history or science or any other authority out there next to Scripture, Scripture always triumphs those authorities because Scripture is God's inerrant word. That brings us to the next subheading in the introduction to the Gospel of John. I'm going to take this this very small paragraph at the top because I promise I'm trying not to talk more than I have to. Um, And then I'm going to need two volunteers, one volunteer to read the next paragraph of text. So volunteer to read the next paragraph of text there on page two under the subheading background and setting. You get a volunteer. Jacob's going to take that and then a Another volunteer to take the next paragraph in that section. Luke will take that, and then I'll take the last paragraph. But before we get to those uh, later paragraphs, you'll notice... um, Let's just go one paragraph at a time. In that second paragraph in this section, who would like to take Matthew 4.12? Matthew 4.12. Thank you, sir. Mark 1.14. Who's that? Okay, thank you, sir. Mark 6.45. Told you you're going to get a workout tonight, either with your thumbs or with your um, other fingers and flipping your Bible uh, from page to page. Mark 6.45. Thank you, Nancy. Um, John 6.26. John 6.26. Cash. John 3, 13 to 17. Very good. Mark 14, 16 through 17. Mark 14, 16 through 17. Playing Playing biblical bingo. John 14, 16 to 17. A lot of possible candidates. (laughs) <laughs> a lot of unopened Bibles in some cases. Uh, John 14, 16 to 17. Um, John 14, 26. Thanks, Falcon. John 16, 7 to 14. Yes, sir, you can take that one. Do you have a Bible? Oh, you'll need a Bible for that passage. <laughs> He's got it. All right, perfect. All right. Almost home, guys.
Um, John 16, 14. The one that I just re- the one that I just read out. Yeah, that one. Okay. John 1, 14. You want to take it? Yeah, you can read it. Got a baby. John 1, 14. John 19, 35. A lot of options. Very good. John 21, 24. You'll find that I'm stubborn. I'll just keep saying it over and over and over again until somebody um, decides to read. Very good. Um, John 20, verses 30 to 31. I'll help you all out with the last four passages. John 20, verses 30 to 31. Okay, mark, mark both. And then John 1, 12. John 1, 12. Very good. All right. So, again, as we read, when they get to your Scripture reference, you're going to read your Scripture reference right after they read up to that point. Okay? That way, again, we're taking MacArthur's commentary. And we are verifying its accuracy with God's word, the ultimate authority for life and godliness, the only inerrant source of divine revelation in our world. So let me take that first paragraph. Hope everybody's ready to read some scripture. Background and setting. Strategic to John's background and setting is the fact that according to tradition... John was aware of the synoptic gospels. And just so you guys know, that word's been thrown around a few times. Synoptic gospels, that's just a reference to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay? Synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The the reason they're called synoptics is because there's a lot of overlaps. And think synonymous, same, similar. Okay? That's the idea there. So, um, moving on. Apparently, John wrote his gospel in order to make a unique contribution to the record of the Lord's life, a spiritual gospel. And in part, John wrote his gospel to be supplementary as well as complementary to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The gospel's unique characteristics reinforce this purpose. Yeah, and if you're in the middle of a sentence and you just want to keep reading till the end of the sentence, feel free to. That's, that's your call. I typically do that because I'm OCD and I don't like cutting off the, in the middle of a sentence. So. Himself was sending the crowd away. After the feeding of 5,000, Jesus compelled his disciples to cross the Sea of Galilee 
We won't cover that one. We're covering that next week. Okay. Yeah, keep going. Larger amounts of didactic and discourse material proportions to narrative, for example, 3, 13, and 17. There we go. Now I have to say that he was he who Thank you. 
John's Gospel is the only one of the four to contain a precise statement regarding the author's purpose. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He declares, These are written that you may believe in Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have, you may have life in his name. John 20, 31. Thus, John had two primary purposes evangelistic and apologetic. Reinforcing the evangelistic purpose is the fact that the word believe occurs approximately 100 times in his gospel. The synoptics use the term less than half as much. John composed his gospel to provide reasons for saving faith and, as a result, to assure readers that they would receive the divine gift of eternal life. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Amen. The apologetic purpose is closely related to the evangelistic purpose. John wrote to convince his readers of Jesus' true identity as the incarnate God-man, whose divine and human natures were perfectly united into one person who was the prophesied Christ, meaning Messiah, and Savior of the world. For example, and I'll take each of these passages in turn, John one forty one. Start in verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. John 3.16, which we read earlier together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 4.25 and 26. The woman said to Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When the one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he, meaning the Messiah. In John eight fifty eight says, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was born, I am. Continuing MacArthur's commentary. He organized his whole gospel around eight signs or proofs that reinforce Jesus' true identity leading to faith. The first half of his work revolves around seven miraculous signs selected to reveal Christ's person and engender belief. Number one, turning water into wine, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Sign number two, healing the royal official's son, John 4, 46 to 54. Sign number three, healing the lame man, John 5, verses 1 to 18. Sign number four, feeding the multitude, John 6, verses 1 to 15. Sign number five, walking on water, John 6, verses 16 to 21. Sign number six, healing the blind man, John 9, 1 to 41. Sign number seven, raising Lazarus from the dead, John 11, 1 to 57. And the eighth sign is the miraculous catch of fish in John 21, verses 6 through 11, after Jesus's resurrection. And we won't read those narratives regarding those miraculous signs. We will cover each of those in turn in the respective sections that they're found in in our curriculum for this summer. A few things I want to say by way of review before we move on to another group discussion question. Note that this is key to understanding the Gospel of John. Many biblical critics, in fact, will, will speculate that John wrote his Gospel 
decades, maybe even up to a century after the other Gospels were written, because it contains a lot of information that's not found in the synoptics. Does anybody remember what synoptics mean? Synoptic Gospels? What are those? See if you were paying attention earlier. Did I hear Matthew, Mark, Luke over here? Very good. So synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They'll say, hey, John's just making all this stuff up. This was nowhere found in the synoptic Gospels. Well, doesn't mean he was making it up. This gets back to why John wrote his Gospel record. You know, how many of you guys have written a paper before for school? Everybody's hand should be up right now. Um, how many of you guys know what a thesis statement is? What's a thesis statement? Yeah, the argument, the central purpose that you want to argue for or prove in your paper, right? So we tend to put that at the beginning of a paper, right? In this paper, I'm going to show you X, Y, and Z, right? In the first century world, they put their thesis at the very end of their document. That's what John does here. He says that I've written these things for you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. He wrote this gospel for two distinct purposes. MacArthur touches on both of these. This is key to understanding why John wrote his book and why it has such a distinct and unique flavor when compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wanted to write in such a way that he could, one, be evangelistic. Who here knows what the word evangelistic means? Bronze? No? Oh, I thought your hand was up. So this is purpose one. Why John wrote his gospel the way he did. He wanted to be evangelistic. The word evangelistic, evangelism, you've heard of that before, I'm sure. It's, it's for the purpose of wanting to, to share the gospel, to, to present the truth of God's word in such a way that sinners might be saved through believing the truth that's contained in the gospel. John wrote his book to provide his, his readers with evidence, firsthand eyewitness testimony that this man was God's son. He performed miracle after miracle after miracle. If you will believe in Him, you will have eternal life. Believe in this One whom God has sent into the world, His only begotten Son. So it was evangelistic in nature. That's, that's purpose number one for why John wrote what he wrote and, and the way in which he wrote what he wrote. He wrote it because he wanted to see sinners saved and he crafted his gospel in such a way that he deemed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to be most effective in presenting lost and perishing sinners with truth that could lead them to saving faith. So that's purpose number one. John wrote his gospel in such a way as to be evangelistic. But there's a second purpose that was undergirding John's approach to writing this gospel. MacArthur notes, it's that it was apologetic in nature. How many of you guys have heard of apologetics before? Show of hands. few hands up. Does anybody know what it means? What, what is it? I, I see Jacob. Were you going to answer? What, what does apologetics mean, buddy? The defense of your faith. The defense of the faith. That's exactly right. This is the context that John found himself in. Okay, Think, think of what's going on here in the late part of the first century. Peter, if you're familiar with 2 Peter or 2 Timothy, Paul wrote 2 Timothy. Those books were written in the 60s. And those books, time after time after time, are saying, 
It has been, they're, they're quoting skeptics when they say this, but they're recognizing the fact that it's been decades since Jesus died and supposedly was resurrected from the dead and ascended to heaven. It's been decades and he hasn't come back yet. You guys are fools for believing in this man. He wasn't anything special. This is all a bunch of malarkey. It's bogus. Jesus wasn't God. He's just a poor man from Nazareth. And what is John trying to do here? He's saying, oh no, my friend. Oh no, skeptic. I was a first-hand witness of what he did. I saw the miracles. He said it in John 1. I touched him and I saw his glory. He is God's son. He was everything that he claimed to be. And on the authority of who he is, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. You need to believe. You need to repent of your unbelief and surrender to his lordship. He is everything he claimed to be. He accomplished everything that God sent him into this world to accomplish. So this book has a twofold nature. It has an evangelistic nature and it has an apologetic nature. And that opens us up for a great discussion question that I think we all need to consider this evening. In light of John's emphasis on both evangelism and apologetics in his gospel, in light of that twofold emphasis, how should that impact how we view our responsibilities as Christians in terms of how we interact with a watching world? Okay, John's focused on evangelism, he's focused on apologetics. Those are running throughout the course of what he's written in his gospel. Okay, those things were important to him. Sharing his faith, defending the faith, evangelism, apologetics. So if that was important for John, and that directly influenced how he wrote the Gospel of John, how should that impact our lives as believers? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that question. Spoken like a true preacher. That's great. <laughs> no, that's, that's great. Yeah. Any, any other thoughts? Who's not the pastor or me? Yeah. So, so given John's emphasis on evangelism and apologetics, and again, evangelism, sharing your faith with others, apologetics, defending your faith, against unbelief or skepticism or what have you. A lot of his emphasis on those disciplines. How should that impact how we view those disciplines? How should that impact how we live as Christians? You can't have one without the other. That is key. Why do you think that, Wayne? Well, if you can't, if you can't evangelize, then there's no need to, uh, not, there's no need to defend the faith. You're not going to evangelize, you don't need to defend the faith. That's right. If you don't defend the faith, there's no reason to evangelize. So yeah. you don't have both of those uh, those ideas and what's taught. If you don't have both of them, you cannot be effective at all. That's basically what I wrote down, yeah. so you're exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> you're a son of a zero. Right? Yes, sir. 
You know, guys, think about it this way. It's very practical. I, I had, Wayne, you're exactly right. And, and there's other thoughts, so I'm going to give you all additional opportunities to talk on this question if you have anything to share. But think about this very simplistically, very, very meat and potatoes right here, okay? When you share your faith with others, you've got to know what you believe and why you believe what you believe, right? When you share your faith, you're sharing what you believe And have you ever shared what you believe without having somebody ask for a clarifying statement or question or a follow-up question, right? When you typically, when you tell somebody what you believe for the first time and and it's new to them, they're probably going to have some questions about it, right? Now, when they ask questions or if they outright just oppose what you believe, what do you got to do at that point? You've got to explain why you believe what you believe. I've just told you what I believe, evangelism. Now they've got questions. Now they've got challenges. Now I've got to defend what I believe and why I believe it. Evangelism gets to the what. Apologetics gets to the why. And those are two sides of the same coin when dealing with the act of sharing your faith with others and of course, being able to give a reasoned answer for the hope that is within you, for the, for the faith that you hold dearly to, to quote Peter from 1 Peter 3.15. So very good, Wayne and, and um, Nick. Any other thoughts or comments on this idea of apologetics and evangelism? That's exactly right. Um, and how important is that to make sure that your testimony, your lifestyle matches what you profess to believe, right? I mean, how effective is your evangelism and your apologetics going to be if your lifestyle looks no different than the pagan down the road who wants nothing to do with God, doesn't care about anything related to spiritual truth? It's not going to make your testimony or it's not going to make your apologetics and evangelism effective because your testimony's nothing. You say, you know, if, if that's Christianity, I guess that makes me a Christian. And I didn't even know that I was one, right? Your testimony doesn't match up with your professed system of beliefs. You're in trouble at that point in, in terms of defending your faith and sharing it with others. So very good, Cash. That's a good insight. Any other thoughts before we move to this next section? We're still on schedule to finish by 8 o'clock, so don't get, don't get nervous yet. Oh, it's okay. It's okay. All right, so guys, great. Let me just say this. Terrific insights uh, in terms of group involvement. You're doing great with reading. Um, some of you guys who just jumped on the reading um, bandwagon here of late, y'all should have jumped on the bandwagon early because you're doing a tremendous job reading God's Word, so... I just want to say thank you for your involvement there. I'm going to read the first paragraph here found under the subheading historical and theological themes. And then I need another volunteer to read the next 
I don't know why MacArthur broke it down. Maybe it was just the publisher, but there's two baby paragraphs. We're going to read them both together as one. So a volunteer to read the rest of the content under this subheading. Jacob, thank you. All right, and then, as you'll notice, there are several texts that are cited here by MacArthur. So let's get to them. Who would like to read John 6.35 when we get to it? John 6.35, Cash, 6.48. Falcon, did you want to read? Very good. John 8.12. Who wants to take John 8.12? Thank you, sir. John 10.7. Thank you, sir. John 10.9. 10.9. Thank you, sir. Uh, John 10, 11 through 14. Luke, you'll take that one. John eleven twenty five. 25. Okay. Uh, John 14, 6. Somebody who hasn't volunteered. Thank you so much. John 17, 3. Thank you very much. You should read more often, by the way. You did a good job last time. Um, and then uh, just two more. John 12, 44 to 46. John 12, 44 to 46. Yes, ma'am. And then John 15, verses 17 through 20. Very good. Okay, and then I'm going to take all of the I am statements there at the very end of this section. All right. Has everybody got their text? All my volunteers. Very good. Let's pick up with MacArthur's commentary. Historical and theological themes of the Gospel of John. In accordance with John's evangelistic and apologetic purposes... The overall message of the gospel is found in chapter 20, verse 31, which we read moments ago. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The book, therefore, centers on the person and work of Christ. Three predominant words or signs, believe, and life that are found in John 20, verses 30 to 31 receive constant emphasis throughout the gospel to enforce the theme of salvation in Christ which is first set forth in the prologue, which um, we're not going to read chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. We're going to save that for our study next week. Picking up where MacArthur left off. First set forth in the prologue is the theme of salvation in Christ, and this theme is expressed throughout the gospel in varying ways. For example, John six thirty five. John 6.48. Very good. John 8.12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Very good. John 10.7. Very good. John 10, 9. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. John 10, 11 through 14. I am 
Very good. John eleven twenty five. Very good. John 14, 6. And John 17, 3. Very good. MacArthur continues. So again, those, those texts we just read, that's, that's fleshing out the theme of salvation in Christ, which is the central theme of John's gospel. MacArthur notes... In addition to fleshing out this theme, John provides the record of how men responded to Jesus Christ and the salvation that he offered. Summing up, John's gospel focuses on, number one, Jesus as the Word, the Messiah, and Son of God. Number two, who brings the gift of salvation to people. And third, who either accept or reject the author. So Jesus as the Word, Messiah, Son of God those who receive his gift of salvation, and those who either um, accept or reject the free offer. All right, next paragraph, the, the two baby paragraphs. John also presents, presents certain contrasted sub-themes that reinforces main theme. He uses dualism, such as life and death, light and darkness, love and hate, from above and from below, to convey vital information about the person and work of Christ and the need to believe in And Jacob, we're just doing the twelve forty four to forty six and fifteen seventeen to twenty, since we've already read those uh, those texts before that. So John twelve forty four forty six. Fifteen, seventeen to twenty. take all of them in order. John six thirty five. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. John eight twelve. Then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. John 10. And I'm going to read verses seven to 14 in order for context. Oh, my phone's malfunctioning. Bear with me here. John 10, 7 and following. Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. 
The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now that's a challenge we all need to consider tonight. John fourteen six. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And John 15, verses 1, I'm going to take all the way through verse 5. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So this is the I am statements. And my question at this point, as we prepare to read that final paragraph under interpretive challenges, which, spoiler alert, There's really not any interpretive challenges in this gospel. John writes so clearly. um, He's so evangelistic. He wants it to be as simple and straightforward as he can be in his writing. But thinking about these I am statements, where in the Old Testament do we find a very significant story of somebody saying I am? Where is I am used so powerfully in the Old Testament. Who is it used in reference to? Any, anybody have any ideas? Uh, in the story with uh, the burning bush, uh, God described himself as uh, uh, I am who I am. That's it. So the text, Exodus three thirteen to 15, and guys, I really hope the fact that I, I didn't really hear any feedback either means you're, you're either getting close to falling asleep or maybe this is new for you. I pray it's the latter. Um, when I first saw this, this changes everything about the glory and excellency of Christ. Let me read the text and break it down for you. Hopefully you see something new in God's word tonight. Moses said to God, Exodus three thirteen to 15, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? asks Moses. And God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Now, when God declares his name to be I am, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, 
But in Hebrew, it's a more precise translation to say, I be who I be. God declares himself as absolute and perfect being, self-existent, self-sufficient, infinite in glory and power and dominion, the absolute perfection of being, so perfect, in fact, that the greatest conception of perfection in our mind isn't even enough to scratch the surface of God's own perfection of existence. He's saying, I am pure being. I have no need to depend on anything outside of myself to be who I am or to do what I do. I have existed simply by virtue of who I am. I created time and space and everything that ever has been and everything that ever will be. I am pure being. I am. That's what God says about himself. And what is Jesus saying? What is John getting at in his gospel? Don't miss this. Every time Jesus says, I am, in the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, he's using the same phraseology that Yahweh used with Moses at the burning, bur- in the, at the burning bush. And he's applying it to himself. And what he's saying is, I am that being, the being who is, who is pure existence. He, he is absolute perfection. That's me. I was that God that revealed himself to Moses. And we know, of course, in God's purposes and revealing himself, he's revealed himself as one God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So this is actually also evidence of the fact that God is Trinity, that the Father is 100% pure being. The Son is 100% pure being in His divine nature. The Holy Spirit is 100% pure being. Not to get too over the top here with this, but there's a saying that goes like this. God does not depend on anything not God to be God. God does not depend on anything not God to be God. That's what God said when he says, I am who I am to Moses. That is who your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, if you know him tonight, that is who he is with the Father and the Holy Spirit. I need nothing outside of myself to be who I am or to do what I do, but I give you everything of myself in covenant with those who believe in me as Lord and Savior. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, I will give you everything. I need nothing in return. That is the God that we serve and that we worship tonight, if you know him through faith in Christ. So I hope that really, you know, got you thinking a little bit um, about that connection. Let me just read the last paragraph before um, we prepare to close in prayer. And um, if you have any questions, you can ask it at that time. But... um, MacArthur notes, interpretive challenges. Because John composed his record in a clear and simple style, one might tend to underestimate the depth of this gospel. Since John's gospel is a spiritual gospel, the truths he conveys are profound. The reader must prayerfully and meticulously explore the book in order to discover the vast richness of the spiritual treasures that the apostle, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, has lovingly deposited in his gospel, and let me take those two passages 
We may have read them in passing, but we'll go ahead and finish off with God's word. John 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And John 16, 13 says this. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. And I'm just going to read verse 14 and 15 for bonus points. Here's a Trinitarian passage. Where does the Bible reveal God is Trinity? Here's an inexplicable, unmistakable passage. You've got the Spirit in verse 13. Verse 14. The Spirit, He will glorify me, Jesus, for He will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. So Jesus, the Spirit, the Father, all things that the Father has are mine. The Father's God, I'm God. And because the Spirit is the Spirit of truth and He will glorify me, He is likewise God. Therefore, I said that He takes of mine and will disclose it to you. John 16, 13 to 15, great passage among many in the Gospel of John that testify to the Trinity of our God. So, that's the introduction to the Gospel of John as commentated by John MacArthur and as discussed by us tonight over the course of our study. Do you think MacArthur is pretty faithful to Scripture as we work through the dozens of texts that we work through tonight? Did you see what we were talking about in Scripture? You know, nothing out of left field or anything? Does anybody have any questions or comments to make before we close in prayer? Absolutely. And guys, that's what you're going to see in John, just to build off of what Nick said. This idea that, that God is just sitting in heaven, just hoping and praying that people are going to be saved, or that God is just hoping and praying that His people will not forsake Him. My friends, when you read John's Gospel, you're going to see God is a perfect, sovereign Savior and the good work that he begins, he will bring it to completion. He always finishes what he starts. We'll see that time after time as testified to us in the Gospel of John. So that's a tremendous um, word and reminder, Nick, on that note. Any other thoughts before we close? Amen. And like you mentioned earlier, not 
not watering down what do uh, is and whatever you hear, you know, it, it's just amazing, you know, this little bunch here we're talking about do in the group that you are involved with spreading it out. You know, we really need that. Amen. And each one of y'all that are here today, so keep hey. doing that. And parents do. It's just great being involved with with parents that are instilling and being hard, cracking the whip, so to speak. You know, you don't like doing it as a parent, but you see the fruit of that mm-hmm. in this kind of setting. And it just, it just humbles me to see it. You know. Oh, absolutely. No, it's, it's, it's my joy to, to, to be here. I'm grateful that you took an hour and a half of your time tonight to, to be a part of this. And I know it could have been a little boring at times just because, again, it, it is history. It is uh, background information. Um, but I, I really think this should get us on the right foot going into the study of the actual text in the weeks to come. Because now we have a pretty good understanding of who John was, how he wrote his gospel, why he wrote his gospel. And um, hopefully that'll, that'll suit you well. Even if you only remember a few kernels of, of everything that we talked about tonight, um, I know sometimes with me, when I fall asleep, I don't retain everything. But um, if you retain anything, praise the Lord. I hope it helps us in our uh, studies in the weeks to come. Lord willing, next week we'll look at John 1, verses 1 to 18. And um, again, just encourage you to complete the discussion questions if you can. And um, just fill your mind with the Word of God in preparation for our time together next Wednesday. Let me pray and uh, feel free to fellowship as long as you want to um, as we close. Father, what a privilege it is to be here tonight with other like-minded brothers and sisters in Christ whom, from before the foundation of the world, Lord, you set your redeeming love upon them in Christ, not for anything that they had earned or deserved, but because you are so rich in mercy. And God, as, as we mentioned during the study, you need absolutely nothing to be who you are or do what you do, but you give us everything. As, as Paul writes in Ephesians, you have given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You've seated us with him. And Father, we will reign and rule with you, your Son, and your Holy Spirit, all the redeemed and holy angels forever and ever in the new heavens and new earth. And Father, what a just unfathomable privilege that that is to consider for the believer. I pray that every person here tonight has come to the point of surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that they've repented of their sin and their rebellion against you and that they have trusted in Christ and Christ alone by faith so that they could have their sins forgiven but God even greater than having their sins forgiven that they might enjoy that intimate communion and fellowship with you your son and your holy spirit as an adopted son or daughter both now and the promise that that will be consummated face to face in glory whether at our earthly death or at the return of Christ. Lord, I pray that these studies would be a time of great encouragement to every person who's able to come uh, on a regular basis. I pray, Lord, that this would be a context where people feel safe to ask questions and to be open about whatever it is that they're wrestling with, whether it be theological or even personal, Lord, so so we can encourage one another to love and good deeds and so we can pray for one another to bring each other's needs and petitions before your throne of grace knowing that you care for us, God. And Lord, if there's anyone here tonight who doesn't know you, whether it be they're self-deceived or whether it be the fact that they just know that they do not 
have a relationship with you through faith in Christ. God, I pray you would crush them under the weight of their sin because you're gracious and because you're kind. And it's only because of you bringing a sinner to their wit's end, as it were, that they can, in desperation, cry out for mercy and grace. And then, God, you you will not smolder a bruised wick. You will accept any sinner who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one name given under heaven whereby we might be saved. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, bring them to that point, whether it be tonight or over the course of this study and the weeks to come. I thank you for every family represented here tonight. I pray for your blessing upon them as they leave this place. Keep them safe as they head home. May they finish this week strong as they prepare to gather corporately with your people on the Lord's Day, the pinnacle of every week to sing praises to you, to pray together, and to sit under the preaching and teaching of your word. Oh, what a foretaste of what we have in store in Christ for ages and ages to come. We love you, God. We thank you for loving us first in Christ and for this great time we've enjoyed together tonight. And we pray this in his name. Amen.